So we've been speaking these last days about some of the most compelling directions of our everyday fixations. What I want, you know, realm of desires, what I think, realm of beliefs, and opinions, views. And then I'd like to look at today a little bit that third area. Right? Uh, who I take myself to be. Uh, identifying with my experience, the sense of a kind of unexamined view of who I am, how I am, what I am. And you know, that, that view, the everyday view, is reinforced in all kinds of ways, internally, externally. So much that it seems, it, it becomes a kind of truism, right? It becomes something rather f incredibly facile on the one hand, and yet so deeply rooted that we don't notice its facileness. You know? So we say, you know, who am I? And we say, I'm me. That's basically what we think. Who am I? Me. Ridiculously facile. I mean, we don't know what any of those things mean. What does me mean? Well, mostly we don't examine what me means. We just take it as given. I'm me. And then we might add many things onto that. Me, me, I'm Martin. I'm this. And then we pick things that reinforce a certain sense of identity, of role, uh, etc., etc. Whatever we, whatever seems in general to be significant part of who I take myself to be, or whatever seems in a particular context to be a significant part of who I take myself to be. So we draw in some things. Some of us draw in our nationality. Or we might draw in our uh, our elements of our education. Or we might draw in. Uh, things to do with our family. I'm, I'm a father. And different parts of uh, our identity that seem important to us. Like I say, in general, maybe, or in specific circumstances. You um, might draw in what our work. A lot of us get very identified with what what we do for work, elements of our physical characteristics. And we're very identified with what I look like. And the whole world of that, the whole realm of that, we, um, we end up with this kind of facile label stuck over the top of all these elements of identity called me. Facile means simplistic. Not simple, but simplistic, right? Misleadingly simple, giving an impression of being simple, but actually just being dumb, right? You know, dumb, and I don't mean pejoratively, just actually dumb, like not very deep, not very intelligent, not very well thought out, right? Really dumb is not a very good word, but facile is the right word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, Dharma teachings encourage us 
not to land on some view. Unfortunately, Buddhism, when there's not enough Bud and too much ism, ends up going from one view, me, this, certainty, all, this, uh, all the things I identify with, to an opposite view, or to try to, to, try to disidentify, end up negating the identity with another facile view, there is no self. And go from identity, reification, affirmation, to denial, negation. From there is to there isn't. And some of you have probably heard me speak about this before. Essentially, the point that the Buddha, you know, when asked point blank, for goodness sake, man, tell me, is there a self or isn't there? Refused to answer. Refused to get drawn into the facile, limited, reductive world of there is or there isn't. The closest he would give to an answer, not just around the sense of self, but around anything, when we get locked into there is or there isn't, he says it's not one, nor the other, nor both, nor neither. (laughs) Let your mind struggle with that. You know? Because mind likes there is or there isn't. Or if we get very sophisticated, both there is and there isn't. Or neither there is nor there isn't. No, not one, not the other, not both, not neither. So really, trying, inviting us, please put down mind's attempt to grab hold of a sense of identity, either affirming or negating, and explore. And we're invited mostly to explore that in the sense that's, you know, that puts down you know, mind's grasping. That's what the exploration of our, the clinging to the sense of who I take myself to be is. It's an invitation, without landing in a position to see where does the grasping go? Where does the clinging go? Where does the fixating go? Is that useful or not useful? If we can see how we're fixating, oh, can we soften it? What happens if we soften it? What happens if we disregard a little these elements of my identity that I pull in? How might I experience that which is here, body, mind, world? How might I experience this knowing of it all, right? this fact that I find myself not just with a body and a mind and a world, but I find myself alive, conscious, awake, responsive, participatory in this experience of body, mind, world. How might all that look to me and how might the participation and the responses change, liberate, if I really give attention to that which I uh, constellate around as me. In many ways we, we might look at that. Just firstly, the, the directions, you know, the, the inner loop of self talking to self, right, about self. We reinforce the I, me, and my through the ongoing inner discourse. And like we were saying the other day, even, even this, what seems like the mindless chatter, background, blah, blah, blah. 
not much interest, not much originality, not much charge maybe, just a kind of relentless background, low-level noise, like having the radio on in the background that's tuned to a particularly repetitive station. Right? Me, 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 me. And you see, oh, right, that's, that, that's just that reinforcement of the familiar sense of me. Facile, and yet so familiar that we take it as a given. And also, you know, self-talking about other. You, he, she, they, them. And the way our views of others constellates that, the way our views of others also become very comparative. Oh, they're like this compared to me. She's like that compared to me. It reinforces that loop. And then the other direction, right? The way self, the way others view self. And sometimes we hear how others view self because they tell us, but but that's much less significant than just the way we imagine others are viewing self. That's where there's much more constellation around that. And the way we imagine, the way we imagine, just think of these days here, the times that well, we have no idea what anybody else is thinking of us here, right? or if anybody else is even noticing us here. Right? But that doesn't stop the, the productions and projections of the, what they think. Sometimes you see it in the work period. Or, as if everybody's very busy looking at how you're cutting the carrots. Right. And you look up, oh, they're just busy cutting their own carrots. They've noticed how you're cutting, or whatever it might be, or how I'm meditating, how I'm walking, how I'm chanting. And, you know, there's a lot of example, a lot of opportunities just to see those loops in action. And particularly when there's a moment where we can feel the friction, where the constellation around a sense of self has gotten tighter. Tighter because we feel in some way deficient, we feel misunderstood, we feel hurt, we feel uh, taken advantage of. There's these very powerful lines in the opening of the Dhammapada. Right? Dhammapada is sort of the most accessible of the of the Buddhist texts. It's not Buddha isn't going into a lot of complicated instru uh, instruction about things or complicated fine descriptions of the of the way mind works. They're almost like aphorisms. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with the Dhammapada, it's, but it's, it's because it's a very accessible text. Um, third and fourth lines of the Dhammapada just. It says something like, slightly misremembering probably, but it says something like, he abused me, he robbed me, he struck me, he hurt me. Harboring such thoughts as these, one does not abandon hatred. So he abused me, he robbed me, he hurt me, he struck me. Abandoning thoughts such as these, one abandons hatred. And that, it's a very challenging line for, for the usual sense of self. Right? We can get very animated by what, and, you know, indignant and outraged by what he did, what she did, what they said, etc., etc., etc. 
harboring such thoughts as these, you know, one lives with the indignation. The other doesn't live with it. One lives with the indignation, the, the outrage. It's like, another line from the Buddha, it's like, uh, actually it's not the Buddha, I can't remember who it is. Someone in the buddhist world, I think. It's like trying to, harboring such thoughts as these, it's like drinking poison as an attempt to put, you know, it's like trying to kill the other by drinking poison yourself. See what? Where does the con- where? What do we? How do we constellate around the sense of self when we feel misunderstood? Or uh, yeah, hurt, maligned, gossiped about, attacked. Of course, people can behave accordingly, aggressively, abusively, violently. And still, some very inspiring stories of particularly Tibetan nuns being uh, nuns that received the worst treatment at the hands of the the Chinese in the occupation of of Tibet. And some of the stories of these nuns have been imprisoned and tortured, I mean, appallingly tortured. And then speaking, you know, about using these lines and other sort of similar teachings as a way to not harbor hatred for their imprisoners, torturers, oppressors. And one nun says, you know, they could take, they could harm my body, and they could harm my, all of this. And yet, they, what they, they couldn't, they, what they, one thing they couldn't make me do was make me hate them. If I was to hate them, then I've really lost my practice. They couldn't take my practice away from me. Touching, powerful, very powerful. And so we had invitation to see the loops of the way we reinforce a sense of self, and particularly, you know, righteousness, indignation. Sometimes it's like that with, you know, in the Dharma context as well. Dharma teachings. Sometimes we like them, but actually, often the ones that are most helpful for us, we don't like so much. They kind of affront our sense of uh, comfort or, uh, <coughs> or uh, you know, that which conduces with the way we're comfortable, the way we'd like to go along, the way that suits us, isn't often you know, what we most need. Like I think I quoted the Bhagavad Gita the other day, you know, the good and the pleasant are not the same thing. I remember once uh, getting a teaching I really didn't like in a group, and again, maybe some of you have heard me speak about this before, with my teacher, and um, explaining something about my, my practice, and with, a, with a hint, maybe more than a hint, <laughs> with, a, with you know, some element of complacency, some element of arrogance, some element of uh, assuming an understanding that wasn't really there, and my teacher said to me, don't tell me about your insight. What about your lack of it? Very strongly like that. Very strongly. Like, like that. Don't tell me about your insight. And he put the hand went like that. Insight. Like, right. Nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> don't tell me about your insight. What about your lack of it? Oh. I was very 
very hard to take. And I was, you know, was in, in public, not really public, big public, but with seven or eight other very close kind of Dharma siblings who I'd done a lot of practice with. So all those loops, how I've, how the self was relating to the self, how the self was relating to the other. Yeah. He was like, like the lines from the Dhammapada. I wasn't thinking of the Dhammapada, but I could have been. He abused me. He misunderstood me. He hurt me. He mm-hmm. yeah, feeling sorry for myself. Feeling very much, you know, um, you know, this, my self-image was really wounded. They're not concerned with what the others thought. Concerned, you know, what I, th- what I thought about what. They all thought about me, what I thought about him, and then uh, all the self-pity and uh, a lot of constellating around a sense of self. And I went outside on the grounds. I put my shawl over my head and I was sobbing in the grounds. It was terrible. I felt terrible. And one of the other people in the group saw me. I don't know if they, they saw the shawl going... <laughs> <laughs> And they went to see oh, Martin's outside sobbing in the grass. My teacher said, they, as they told me this afterwards, my teacher said, oh, good healthy flow of the emotional life then. <laughs> no, sometimes it's like that. I was meeting with somebody earlier today who's, who's teaching meditation. And we were looking at, you know, how to, how to, let people suffer, you know, to be in solidarity with their suffering, but to actually give them the opportunity, to actually give them the opportunity to have the dignity to be where they are and, and you know, inhabit it so that they can actually see. That's what happened in that experience. I started, you know, after a lot of thrashing around and, and with myself and, and, you know, sobbing, I got to see the gift of that. I got to see the way I'd been given this invitation to see all the loops and see all the selfing I was doing. And the invita- to, to, to see, oh, the, the lack of insight that had been there. To see the hubris or arrogance that had been in my original comment. And, you know, that mixture of kind of humiliating but humbling. What's what's makes the difference between humiliating and humbling? How tightly one held to the sense of self. All the while I was invested in my self-image and myself, it was humiliating. When I could let go of that, it was just humbling. Later in the evening, went and stood outside his room. When he came back, I just bowed. I couldn't have imagined at the time that I would have anything to be grateful for. <laughs> but in the end, it was very appreciative. And even now, speaking about it now, 20, I don't know how many years later, it's very moving. So in small ways, or sometimes in big ways, you know, when we feel hard done by, humiliated, misunderstood, hurt, you know, in our relationships, by our family, by colleagues, by friends, by teachers, by whoever. 
to look at that through this lens of the way we constellate around the sense of self to see where the rub is and to what in what way the rub the friction the pain the humiliation is directly the way which the self is describing the self the self is projecting the views of others towards the self etc etc There's a way that the, when there's a kind of curious phrase that the Buddha uses in speaking about um, this form of you know, clinging to a sense of identity. He calls it clinging to existence and non-existence. Clinging to existence and non-existence. There's a lot of ways to understand that, right? One is just a fundamental way where you that mind works in terms of there is or there <coughs> isn't. Right? We can see a conceive of existence, there is a sense of self, or there isn't. But not one, not the other, not both, not neither. We don't we just don't know where to turn. But when we look at the there is or the isn't, there isn't, we look at the clinging to existence or to non existence we might start to see the kind of binary limitation of it. There is, there is this thing, this dorje, this oh. We fixate on the thing, there is, there is. We fixate on the thing, we lose the context, right? The, the, the interpenetration of everything, the space around. When we say there isn't, we lose the thing itself. To, to kind of to honour the appearance of things, without clinging to existence, it's real, it's true, it's like that, or without clinging to non-existence, without denying what's there. As Leonard Cohen says, it's real, but it ain't exactly no, it's there, but it ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. But we can, so we also, without, without kind of getting abstract or philosophical about that clinging, we can see the clinging to existence and non-existence playing out in all kinds of different ways. And some of us tend more towards in one direction than the other. Yeah. Some of us, it's like our attempt is to try to be, to, is to cling to existence, to try to be enough, to try to feel big enough, solid enough, good enough. And, so, and your student, um, who would, would, was a bodybuilder, right? trying to, and you could recognize that uh, partly through kind of particularities of childhood, always feeling like not enough. Mm. Not enough, and the bodybuilding was just an attempt to be enough, to be big enough, to be strong enough. And some, he built, worked out so much that sometimes, in the, he couldn't lift a telephone to his ear. Really, his arms were so big, couldn't get the telephone <laughs> to the ear, and still, still didn't feel it big enough. Mm-hmm. Kind of sort of a sort of body dysmorphic 
relationship to clinging to existence, trying to be solid enough, big enough. And then you see the opposite as well, clinging to non-existence, something like anorexia. Right? When someone feels too big, they feel like they need to be smaller, they need to be less, they need to shrink in some way. And often people who have suffered or who suffer or have suffered from anorexia will speak about it very much in those terms of feeling like they were, all, they were just too big, they just needed to be a little less of them. Kind of trying to actually, in a physical, bodily way, trying to disappear, clinging to non-existence. And the same thing plays out, you know, emotionally. Insecurity, in emotional insecurity of trying to bolster one's sense of self, trying to be bigger. Kind of oh, friend, Trumple Stiltskin again. Right? You know, and then, like, you know, the president of a country boasting about the size of his penis or the size of his hands or the size of his nuclear button, right? Just flagrant psychological attempt to, to cl- cling to existence in Buddhist language, to try to feel big and important and powerful. And there he's the president of the United States. He still feels desperately insecure. You couldn't imagine a bigger position, right? The top person in the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world. Oh, yes, but my hands are still, still, it's kind of relentless. Relentless. These movements, you know, arms so big you can't lift the phone. President of the United States doesn't do anything to assuage the insecurity and the attempt to cling. And then also emotionally, the opposite, clinging to non-existence. And some, some people will often describe like embarrassment or awkwardness or, and wanting to disappear. I, say, I wanted the ground to swallow me up. It's a very common phrase to, to say. Oh, I, just, I just wanted to disappear. And the emotional relationship, clinging to non-existence, some of us turning to sleep, or turning to intoxication, or turning to just ways to try to, to kind of, uh, you know, to, to go towards oblivion in, in one form or another. You can also, when we just using as we as the, the track of just entering into breathing that we're seeing, you can see the origins of those tides. Of existence and non-existence in in the breathing breath the in-breath is expansive enlivening it goes towards existence a lot of thought forms get particularly the charged thought forms a lot of often take birth in the in-breath you can feel the, the not just the the energetic enliveningness but the feeling of the feeling of becoming someone, the becoming of the in-breath, and then the dying, the falling away, the uh, the tending towards non-existence of the out-breath until that that still point at the end, where in which all experience can sort of just fade, drop, disappear, vanish, die. 
go out of existence. This breath comes into existence and then goes out of existence. And for some people, it, it becomes quite clear, the direction, just in the relationship to the breath. In my early practice, I really noticed I had a very strong, it sounds strange, but I had a very strong preference for the out-breath. Right? It's like, oh, I just wanted, I really, I, I wanted, really, to just be able to breathe out, not breathe in. There's something very seductive about that. The, the relinquishment of the out-breath, the peace at the end of the out-breath, the quality of letting go in the out-breath. Right? And of course, a lot of Buddhist teaching talk about <coughs> not-self, talk about letting go, we talk about relinquishment, non-attachment, all these things. It's like all that seemed to be in the out-breath. And I was, tr- I was basically trying to just breathe out. I, yeah, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> For others, when you look carefully, it's kind of intoxicated by the in-breath. Sense of gives a sense of, of kind of being able to feel myself, being able to kind of uh, grab on to something tangible. One wants to just breathe in, trying to have a sense of more of me, and just right there in the, in the in the breathing, in the in the extraordinary ways, sometimes very subtle ways, one can see one's clinging to existence and non-existence, just playing out right there, in this moment by moment, breath by breath. And to actually really make room for the other side. For me, that was a lot of the integration of my practice was actually making room for breathing in. I got in. I was 19 when I started to practice, and I was kind of off in monasteries and in the Himalayas. And I, I really had the sense of not just leaving the world behind, but spitting on the world. <laughs> you know, I didn't want anything of it. I didn't want anything of my family. I didn't want anything of my education. I didn't want anything of the West. <laughs> I didn't want anything of Babylon. All those words were very evocative for me. I wanted to just breathe out. (laughs) Once I was in in Delhi. The first time I was coming back to Europe, I'd been in India about a year and a half. I hadn't spoken to Westerners for about five months, probably. I was terrified of, of, of going to London. I didn't really want to go. My teacher had told me, okay, <laughs> go, go and see your family. My family were completely alarmed at what was happening to me. I was writing them very unhelpful letters full of <laughs> cosmic uh, nonsense that they couldn't understand. You know? And I thought I'd take a photograph to reassure them, smiling photograph, but I'd, I'd lost 18 kilos since I left. So it wasn't at all reassuring for them. They, oh. I felt good, you know, but they didn't think I looked good. So my teacher said, look, you know, go back to it. I said, oh, they don't, they don't understand. He said, it doesn't matter. Family are God. Go and sort it out. In your pants. So I went down to Delhi. I was just about to take the plane. And I, m- I met this, uh, an English guy who'd, who'd become a sadhu, a Hindu kind of wandering renunciate. 
they some of them are they have this quite you know sort of crazy wisdom tradition he was quite crazy i'm not sure about the wisdom but quite crazy <laughs> and i was already full of doubts about going back to london and then he just made them one lot worse he said oh, where you go where you ah oh, sitaram he greeted me sitaram it's one of the calls of that particular lineage he said, oh, where are you going? Where are you coming from? I said, oh, I come down from the mountains. Oh, where are you going? It's a very classic Indian greeting. Where are you coming from and where are you going? So he's been there long enough to absorb that. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I said, I'm going to London. Oh, he says. <laughs> he says, don't you know that line in the Bhagavad Gita? Where you say, how foolish is the elephant that having gone into the river and cooled off, and taken a deep, cool bath. Then the elephant comes back and rolls again in the dust. He said, you've been taking a deep, cool bath in India. Why do you want to go back and roll in the dust of the West? <laughs> oh, dear. Where was I? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. So for, for me, it was really, it was really, you know, just even just inside the in-breath, learning to kind of tolerate the in-breath, actually, to tolerate expanding, to actually really being in life, to kind of making room for, for this. Right? Uh, for, to, to kind of honor the fact that, oh, oh, oh I'm human. Oh, I'm supposed to be here. I've got to live with this. And for some of us, it's it's the opposite. Well, we kind of get we get very drawn into you know, to the kind of trying to be, achieve, attain, uh, uh, manufacture, present, uh, manage, uh, get, do, have, become. Uh, it's learning to actually just soften into the out-breath. Learning to trust that we can actually disappear into the out-breath. And again, and again. And letting each out-breath actually soothe our restless mind. <coughs> letting uh, ourselves kind of ride the out-breath into silence. Stillness. Emptiness, vastness, no thingness. So on the one hand, we have this, these, these natural movements, right? There's the clinging to existence and the clinging to non-existence, but there's also it's natural in-breath, natural out-breath, right? the way we're invited to show up in life and rest into life. And the, and the kind of the, the implications as we taste that in breathing, as we taste that in bodies, we taste that in the seasons, and taste that in the tide and rhythm and movement of all phenomena, <laughs> serving as an invitation to kind of gracefully show up, express, commit, engage, respond, and 
to rest and surrender, allow, give up. So there are these elements of our place in the world, our identity in the world, the things we we say, you know, my name, my nationality, my you know whatever my role, my work, my whatever it is that's that you know forms the the in breath of who we are, the way we show up in the world, and those things make a difference. It's different to have this kind of a body or that kind of a body. It's different to move around in a brown-skinned body than a white-skinned body. Right? It's different to, uh, to move around in the world as a man or a woman or as somebody who doesn't uh, feel they fit with, the, with either of those. It's different to, you know, we have different experiences. And we're really invited to, uh, to actually to honour those. That's the in-breath part, right? That's the existence to honor those. The world gets fixated on existence. But sometimes spiritual teachings get fixated on non-existence. Honor without getting caught in. Once in one of these kind of Advaita scenes, was with Punjaji in, in India in the, sometime in the early 90s. And Punjaji was a wonderful teacher, but the scene around him was a little bit um, flaky <laughs> in some way. Visiting briefly, I had a friend who was very close to him. Now someone passed me the salt. I said, oh, thank you. And the person said, hey, there's no one to thank. So I went like this, and the person flinched a bit. I said, hey, there's no one to slap. Il a dit, il n'y a personne à remercier. À remercier. Il m'a passé le sel, je dis merci. Il m'a dit, il n'y a personne à remercier, mon frère. Un truc comme ça. Pas mon frère, parce que... Il n'y a pas de frère, il n'y a personne. Il bon, n'y a personne à remercier. Et je dis, il n'y a personne à foutre un baffe, non. Il n'y a, a personne à... à yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I saw that uh, painfully once with a, with a, a teacher that, that just didn't honor that well enough in the moment. It was a friend that I uh, was close to and had done a lot of practice with. And in a retreat, she started to just recover a lot of uh, memories of early sexual abuse that had been completely uh, repressed. She had no idea of, uh, about two so decades, and then they were coming back in a flood in, in this retreat. It was very, very painful, of course, very difficult. And it made her incredibly fearful around men. And you know, one, of the, one of the teachers on the retreat, one of the female teachers was supporting, and a couple of the other women on the retreat were supporting her. It was a very difficult time. She needed a lot of support. And the, but the senior teacher uh, was a man in this retreat. So the senior teacher came along to 
offer some support, but she just couldn't be around, didn't want to be around anybody in a male body, you know. And he says, oh, well, you know, something. I can't remember exactly what was said now, but something along the lines of, you know, oh, well, fundamentally, we're not men, we're not women, you know, yeah. And it was just very unattuned in the moment, right? go too far into some idea of non-self, some idea of non-identification, without honouring the differences, the identities, the responsibilities. That's part of being in a male body, right? Is realising women might not feel safe around us as men for all kinds of good reason. Historically, women have got all kinds of good reason to not feel safe around men. And of course, that's up in our culture a lot at the moment. You know, Weinstein and everything that follows, Me Too, Time's Up. Da, da, da. The kind of shining a light on uh, rape culture, etc. And then immediately the male backlash, not all men. No, of course not all men. Right? But men. Right? Yeah, identify with and then not, not rather than honouring. Oh some sense of collective responsibility. Honouring identity without identifying. Right? That's the subtlety of not one, not the other, not both, not neither. That's the subtlety of the middle way. Not to go from there is to there isn't. But to hang out with identity in a way that's available to ambiguity. This, work, this inner loop. These outer loops, the way self describes self to self, the way self describes self to other, the way, the way self imagines other describing self to self. It needs a lightness of touch. It needs the mind of non-clinging, not a shift from one position to another position. How might we inhabit this body, this mind, this history, these identifiers, these descriptions, these roles, these responsibilities, to breathe into them and to breathe them out, to show up and to drop, to come alive in the midst of and to let it all go. That's the invitation of our practice as we meet ourselves, you know, moment by moment, breath by breath, mind moment after mind moment.